It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Hello again, this is Brand Handley. I'm founder and managing director of ROI Executive Search, and we do retained executive search across the middle market globally. Today's the next step in our journey into the corner office, and I'm here with my good friend of over five years, Marcus Ryman. Hello, Marcus. Marcus, uh, throughout his career, has led and held senior executive positions with P&L management, corporate strategy, marketing, and consumer analytics uh, for many, many large companies. American Seven. Express, right? No, no, Siemens. Siemens. Covidian, um, and I'm Medtronic. New York Life. And a big insurance yeah. company, we know. Yes, New York yeah. Life. financial. <laughs> but more importantly, he's the founder and CEO of Knocking, a content and commerce company for all media. We're going to hear a little bit about in a minute, but welcome. Yeah. It's nice to be here in your office. Yes, I, yes. I just found out I'm probably one of the few people that have been here other than you. I'm, I'm alone here nor normally. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got a wonderful space here, even with the sound blockings and so forth. You could really produce. It used to, used to be a recording studio. It's a recording studio. It just hardly ever made it and became the office with uh, COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So Very nice. And, and a little movie theater out front as we saw on the way in. So kids got a little Not use out of that. Kids love it. <laughs> Well, we'd like to start at the beginning, and yours is a very fascinating one, international family. Mm -hmm. So tell us where it all began. Where did you grow up? What was your early family like? I, I grew up in Munich. Mm -hmm. um, my, my dad uh, was German. His family uh, grew up in Munich as well. My mother is from uh, Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, Ljubljana, right. family. where I spent yeah. some time, as you may recall. Y yes. I did yeah. an internship there many years ago. It's Beautiful cra town. Crazy. I don't think many people go. So the like, Dragon Bridge, I remember well. It's like three and a half, four million Slovenians. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so they... Uh, and did they, they meet met... in Germany? Did, did mom go to school there? My, or? my dad went on vacation in Yugoslavia. Ah. They met somewhere at the beach. Um, and, uh, they, they sort of lost touch, but were writing letters at some point. She stopped responding. My dad was on his way through Yugoslavia. So he thought maybe he'll visit her, found right. out, um, that she had a really bad car accident. She was oh in the hospital. Gosh. Wow. Um, car drove into her while she was on her bicycle. She flew in 20 feet through oh. the air and landed on her oh head. Oh my goodness. So, um, re really bad shape. <clears throat> and, um, they, they stayed in touch through it. Um, my my dad grew up in a, a religious house. He's okay. a believer, Christian. Right. My my mother, you know, grew up in atheist Yugoslavia, not at all. Right. But yeah. she she started to um, show interest, and she found God through this experience. You know, and got over it entirely, even though doctors thought she wouldn't. And a couple of years later, my parents got married. Wow! Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous brothers and sisters. Uh, older brother, younger sister. Okay. Older brother, yeah. so you're the middle child. <laughs> Not the black sheep. Whatever that means. <laughs> I, I well, in your case, a lot of success, that's yeah. for sure. So so lived in uh, Germany throughout your old childhood? Uh, I lived in Munich for 16 years. 16. And my, my dad accepted a position in Berlin. So we as a family moved to Berlin. I, I remember it was... Um, now, is this pre-1989? That's right. But yeah, wow. yeah, it was 92. Yeah. So um, just, just after that. Yeah. The wall yeah. Coming it was, in. was fascinating. I mean, it's still 16, very interesting time. You leave everything behind. I remember my parents asked us, should we do it? Should we not? They actually consulted my brother and wow. I. Wow. And, and I remember thinking, um, I'm going to leave a lot of friends behind, but I don't know if I have these friends because I grew up here or because I'm good at building relationships. So mm. I, I looked at that move as you know, really almost an opportunity to say, 
can I build something right, know, from, right. from nothing? You know, so right. I moved to Berlin. It was, it was fantastic. You know, some of my closest friends are still from Berlin to this day yeah. um, and, and lived there for a few years, finally studied in England yeah. um, and uh, met my wife while I did a missions trip um, to uh, Montana and Thailand. And years later, we got married. So that's right. how I found my way to the U.S. Well, we'll hear about that a little. I want to, I want to get a little deeper on the early stages. So, yeah. so dad moved to Berlin, worked as a professor, or was he an engineer? Or was he, was an, he was an engineer. engineer. He, was, um, he was heading up an R&D and production department for a okay. telephone company. Got it. And um, so he was an executive headed to yeah, a larger moved, telephone company. Moved to company. another location, right? Yeah, he managed you know staff of engineers, like right, three, right, four hundred right. engineers. I never got any of this. You know, as a kid, you grow up and all yeah. you know is you, yeah, you maybe an engineer, head. maybe you know that, and yeah. then maybe one day you spot his title. And I remember thinking, oh, I want to be a director one day. Sounds good. <laughs> and, uh, other than that, you know, very little, yeah. very little purview to what it actually meant to to work. But that's his background. He's he's an engineer, and he's a he's a fantastic person and the older I got the more I realized just what a blessing it was to have a dad yeah, like that yeah mom worked in the home or did she have an outside job she worked in the home she yeah. had you know two two boys they were fighting all the time uh, <laughs> she tried to find a way through it you know right, <laughs> all, all right. kinds of discipline that came away but we coped with it yeah uh, she's you know a very very gentle very gentle person very kind person um, the, the type maybe we all meet this type of person that uh, doesn't really understand half the jokes that are made because <laughs> there's nothing in her that wants to be sarcastic. There's nothing right. in her that wants to put anyone down. So when you right. make a joke along those lines, she she actually will not get it. You know, yeah. That, yeah. that became a bit of a running joke. You know, she either wanted wouldn't laugh while everyone else is laughing. Right. She tried to giggle along, but yeah. not get yeah. the punchline entirely. <laughs> got it. Got it. Were you yeah. a good student in school? Uh, no, I was. Uh, <laughs> that was a quick answer. Yeah, that was. That's a pretty clean one. I <laughs> I did eighth grade twice. Yeah. Okay. Um, I flunked um, English, German, and Latin. I yeah. was. Well, and, you remember, probably weren't challenged. We find that with a lot of CEOs. You yeah. Know, there were things that just you didn't find interesting. Yeah, I've I've had enough people tell me this through the years after the fact, and they're like, "Oh, you seem to be doing well in life. Probably you were just lazy or you know, not not challenged." <laughs> and maybe it's true, right? But I, I I do know I I was lazy, and you know. So there's a reality here. Right, um, right. If you're lazy because you're not getting stimulated enough, you're still lazy. And um, <laughs> if you require a lot of input from other people to overcome it, there's still something you got to work on. But um, I was very good at math. I was very good at sciences. I would never do homework. Right. I wouldn't do homework. And um, I remember teachers, some teachers recommend to my parents, you know, hey, maybe you shouldn't go to university. Maybe, you know, you should Because you, you have the streaming in Germany, right? Yeah. You, kids going to vocational schools right. if they don't necessarily have the grades. or Yeah, you either do yeah. nine nine years or right. 11, and then yeah, you, yeah. You, know, you do an apprenticeship, either you know, right. bakery or right. mason yeah. or, or you whatever know, your so aptitude is. Or yeah. you go 13 years, and then with that, you know, you sort of graduate from a 13 year high school and you can go to college. And right. there was this conversation. You know, my, my parents were teachers. Maybe he's not. That's not for him. And it was one teacher kept telling my parents, he's just lazy. <laughs> one teacher. And they his, weren't taking any of these. He wasn't taking any of these. His name was still remember his name. His name was Mr. Gumtel. He was an English teacher. Wow. He, he, it was surprising because he, you know, he gave me my fail. And you know, yeah, yeah. But um, what I found when we moved to Berlin, um, I, I had one year where it was still bad. But as soon as I had a new relationship network, yeah, it it changed entirely. It kicked in. Oh, that's interesting. So we went to Berlin. I we went to my parents. Sort of took us to this church that my my brother and I at the time, you know, 16, 17, 18. Yeah. we really liked. We liked the youth group, and I I built this relationship with you know twenty sixteen to twenty four year olds. So just we became good friends, and I made a point of getting to know everyone at school. Right. I mean, I would write a list of names. I I would every day for for weeks. If I meet someone, I'm going to write the name down after. Huh. I'm going to call everyone by their first name. Wow. So, you know, you do that for a few weeks. You're going to walk the hallways. You know, know people. Yeah. you know more more people than they do. And they they sort of know you. At some point, it's embarrassing when someone calls you. <laughs> but you don't know their name, right. But, um, but my relationship focus changed from being friends with people at school to being friends with people at church. Ah, and what that did it. to me was I, I just stopped being a class clown. I stopped right. being distracted. I stopped as a matter of fact, sort of caring. And I just let school be school. And I, I paid attention or I didn't distract. And I went from you know, a D minus student to graduating. I think it was the second of class of 120. Wow. 
two years later. Oh, it yeah. surprised me too. So yeah. that that yeah. was that was a big turnaround that no one saw coming. I I would agree. Yeah. Other other interests? Did you have sports? Did you you know? Join the chess music. club. I mean, what other things did you pursue? In school? Music. I, music. I played piano. Yeah. Right, right. That, that was a big thing. Yeah, I played volleyball, liked it, but you know, soccer occasionally, like any, yeah. Any, yeah. any German would. But right. Now my my life was made up very heavily of school, church, music. Right. And right. it sort of cool. rotated through. Yeah. It, it work is different now than I I had it for many years. I, for many years, work was a bit predictable. You know, yeah. you work in larger companies right. and. There's a, work, there's a flow of meetings. There's a workflow that comes from different areas, departments, bosses. And so at any point in time, you may find yourself in a spot where you have too little time, but you just plow through. Right, right. Um, when you do something entrepreneurial and you start to build a team, at some point you get away. I remember it sort of happened around 15, 20 people. Hmm. You get away from the point where it's actually productive for you as the, the CEO to step in and do it all yourself right. and try to do it better. Right, right. And what happens then is you, you're going to sit in the spot where you think, should I jump in and help or should I drive? Or should yeah. I help business development or should I help in finance? And you have to become very judicious in where you jump in because the organization becomes dependent yeah. on it. Or you may clash with someone who is actually not worse than you, just right, a different right, style. Right. So I, I would say over the last two years, three years in particular, what has changed is I don't always plow. I spend time listening. I spend time thinking. I do finance. I do legal. I you know, coach. But I need to be available when people need me. Right. So in sure. a way, I'm, I'm on standby um, a lot more, even when I may have half an hour where I'm actually thinking everything is good. I still feel if someone reaches out, I ought to be able to respond. Right, half an hour. right. Well, let's so, talk a little bit busy, about that because not busy, you, what do you call yeah, it? I'm not sure. Yeah, well, your your leadership development arc is obviously you know modified over the years, but I want to kind of go back to those early days and how you kind of transitioned to college. Now, so did you do an undergraduate in Europe before coming over <clears> to the states? Yeah, I, I did. I did my my BA and MA in economics. Got it. Uh, in England. In and, England, and right? Came, and then you came to Wharton, right? And did your MBA eventually? I, yeah, I, I did. My, so I studied at Cambridge in England, and then right. uh, came to the US, worked for five years. So tell years us about that transition to the U.S. So so was there a job opportunity that came your way? Did you kind of make the decision that you needed to go on to the U.S.? How did that come about? I I went to England intentionally um, to get an international degree because I, I didn't want to end up staying in Germany. Okay. And um, what that meant for me at the time was I'm going to enter finance or consulting. Right. And I'll I'll end up working in Singapore, Hong Kong, or New York. Wow! So if you think about the the four or five financial centers at at the time, That's Singapore, Hong are. Kong, New York, Frankfurt, yeah. and London. And I thought right. Frankfurt is Germany. Yeah, London I don't have to do if I study in England. So it's the other three. And um, I I became friends with my wife, future wife, before I went to uh, to Cambridge. And then throughout that time, we, we grew closer and eventually got married in my last year. Oh, so you met her while you were still living in Germany? Yeah. All right. Yeah, got, it, yeah. got it. Cool. Got cool. married in my last year. Yeah. And then after, it was sort of obvious to say, I, I've met her I've met her family, um, yeah. but I didn't really know them. Right. The thought was, right. why, why go to Asia? Yeah, yeah I can go sure. go to New York and get you to got know New York, her family. Right. She's, she's from Long Island yeah. originally. So the, the idea was to to actually go to where she's from and get to know the family right? You know, and not cool. rip the daughter out of the family. Right. Right. Um, there was no job, you know, and, and yeah. we moved there in, uh, I think it was July, 2002, 2002. So this is after nine 11 as well. Right. So we got bef married. before you had citizenship, before you had oh, yeah, work yeah. permit and all that. We got oh. married 16 days before nine 11. Wow. We wow. arrived on our honeymoon. We did a sort of extended honeymoon a week in New York. And then we flew to Indonesia, um, Bali. And we arrived in Bali the day before nine 11. Oh my gosh. And, and I think if I recall correctly, I, I couldn't tell at, at the time, but I, I think we saw the second plane hit. So we sort of snapped into the, right. the new cycle. Yeah. Um, I think it would have been later in the day. Yeah. So that, that took up a, you know, obviously almost all the attention. Well, did you get, did York. you get stuck in Bali? Not that would be a bad place to get stuck, but, but you know, the flights were closed down, right? <laughs> I, know, I, mean, I was, I was, probably couldn't return to the, US. I was worried about the opposite. You know, my father-in-law loves his daughter, loves family. Sure. He'll jump from any hoop to protect his family. So yeah. I knew, I knew within 24 hours, 
he's going to start making plans to save us from you know <laughs> where, whatever danger he thinks wherever we're that in, you're right? at yeah and so he's in new york and they experience everything directly we're in one of the largest muslims muslim countries so right. as soon as that's i think right. people connect the dots yeah it'll be this thought where are you safe well i felt you know I feel a lot safer in Indonesia than I do in New York right now. Right. But within two days, the, the question came up, hey, do you really want to stay the entire time? Yeah. Why don't you come back yeah. home? And, right. And we were planning to be there for 14 days. Yeah. We, we were the only 12. Only 12. Well, in, in most end, of it anyway. He flew us out two days early. Like he, he couldn't wait the last two days. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. He couldn't wait the last two days. He, he flew us out. So, you know, we took a flight via Hong Kong, went back to Germany. And then, as a matter of fact, it was a crazy honeymoon. Then we flew to England. And from there, we flew to Portugal, right. and Spain, and then we went back home. Wrapped it was an extended honeymoon. So what was that first job that you took in New York in the financial industry, right? I mean, you, you ended up pursuing that path for and a no, while. No, I, I actually didn't. You, know, you didn't? I, I would okay. have. I would have. But we that got to plan. New York, you know, less than a year after 9-11. Um, lived, moved to New York City. Um, and, and my father-in-law ran his own company. He, he'd invented the MRI scanner in the 70s and built, his, ah. built a company that manufactures wow. MRI scanners. Um, you know, that's a, actually a coolest story in whatever we talk about yeah. today. But, I'm going to um, get him on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so he was asking me to join his business. Oh, okay. Here, my wife was, was you know, more Well, that makes sense. As much that. as he protects his daughter, he wanted to have you pretty close. I, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, did, did he think of this as protection or a blessing? I don't know. But, yeah, it could be both. Uh, you know, my wife's feeling was it, it's uh, it probably better not to. Right. And, and yet we, we looked at what it meant to, you know, get started and look for a job. And New York was not a good place. And right. And it became right. clear. We'd likely have to move to Boston or yeah, Chicago or right, somewhere else to make right. it work. Those post nine eleven years were tough. Yeah. Very tough. So years. so we thought, okay, wh why don't I why not give it a try? You know, and, mm. and that giving it a try that, that became an extended period. But uh, right, so right. I never entered uh, finance until years later, actually. Yeah. yeah. So who was that first company? Who, who did you go uh, His name for? is Phonar, F O N A R. Okay, got it. Yeah, and yeah. you come in a management position or was it entry level or uh, that's a that's a funky one, right? So yeah. you come in and you're you're the CEO's son-in-law. You know, right. it's, it's not right. clear what you are. And everyone, yeah. interesting experience. So family-run business. They had like four or five hundred employees at the time. Oh, pretty big. Um, yeah, Nasdaq trade company. Yeah, and so I come in. I'm I'm as junior as you know they come. And right. I'd worked for two years at Siemens in Germany. So in yeah. Germany, I I went to school. Then I went through a, a management trainee program with Siemens, and they wanted right. me to stay, but I went to study. So it wasn't my first time working, you know, right, but, sure. um, so here you are, you know, early twenties and the role isn't clear. So sort of end up getting slotted into a mix of marketing and mm. planning, but, but he, you know, my father-in-law did not make it, you know, clean and easy. He didn't say, here's your job. He right. said, find something essentially. Yeah, so yeah. you end up being the spot. I think I'm sensitive enough to realize, you know, whoever I stick my nose, people are not necessarily going to like, <laughs> you know, in there. That the size of it. Yeah. Yeah. So what this meant, it became clear to me. I, I spent some time understanding technology now, that, you know, this medical side works and what, how MRI, MRI scanning works. But ultimately I, I tried to pursue things that no one else did. Right. right. And that, that meant how do we approach European sales when we're mostly a U.S based company yeah, yeah. we've never sold to the u.s military can we wow, do that so wow. uh, and then bit you know, sales management they, everything was paper-based you know yeah sales, sure sales reporting can we have a crm tool that actually visualizes for people you know what they're working on and what context they're following up on and, and so i take it the company wasn't that technologically advanced even it, though they had an mri they it, weren't it, <laughs> Right, using you know, it much in their processes. So, think about it. Salesforce management. We we had I think about 15, 16, 17 salespeople, and uh, you know, today you use Salesforce or right. CRM or something right. like that. Well, we didn't have the budget for it nor the interest, I think. Um, and so, what I ended up doing is I hired a developer and we used Microsoft Outlook, yeah, develop spreadsheets we, now. We reprogrammed basically the contacts within Microsoft Outlook, gave everyone, every salesperson, Microsoft Outlook, but now had. An ability within each contact for them to enter updates and timelines. So wow, we, cool. we made that a fancy thing that then went to one database and you could stream, you know, basically a contact management. There you go. It was it was clunky, but yeah. it did the job. Yeah. And um it what it did is it created a lot of data on, you know, follow-up times and leads and lead conversion and right. things. So it was it was cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. I had to build it from ground up, which is sort of fun. And in the end, you know, I, I spent some time in this and uh, increasing amounts of time on business development for right. the Department of Defense and for Europe. 
Now, did you have management responsibility there? Did you start managing? People I, I did. I did. And, and it was splendid. You had people that worked for me and, and I had people who, you know, worked for my father-in-law. And Good so sake. by extension, I think there was always a bit this attitude of, you know, do I have to listen to what he says? Yeah, you know, right, I, I, and not, right. not that I said in the room, told people what to do. It almost the opposite. I, I think I, I tried. Um, I tried to respect who I was, which is sure. a young guy has got a lot to learn right. and understand this as much as they do. Right, right. But at the same time, being invited into executive meetings and sitting there and being asked occasionally or having to opine. So it there was a lot to be done there in finding a balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how long did you stay at Farm? Five years. Five years. Five yeah. years. Was it, it was, was it hard to leave? Um, no, it was it was the right thing the to right leave. Um, and, and for two reasons. I, um, Fonar was a company full of good people, um, and but they didn't have the structures you would find in larger companies. Right. And right. and they lacked some of the disciplines with it. They lacked some of the tools. Um, yeah. So, you know, marketing planning just happened through conversation. Yeah. And sales right, planning. Right. Reporting right. was very rudimentary. You know, yeah. you didn't do analyses of P&L. We sold a million and a half dollar machine and we got to a point where your know, decision was made. We don't negotiate deals. Right. Wow. It makes the conversation a bit easier, but you lose deals. And, <laughs> right, right. and not every deal has the same cost structure. So you're actually not doing yourself a benefit. What if you can shift revenue away from the unit unit or the equipment to maybe the build out or right. services? So that they, it, it lacked sophistication. I know there was there was brilliance in medical science. Yep. And there were a lot of people there, I think, that um, would have been really great, but they had great loyalty too. So sure. when you have now a doctor scientist run a company, it puts it's a very limits. product driven. Type it puts of limits on yeah. great people that yeah. run finance yeah. or great sure. people that run engineering. Sure. And so I, I recognize that too. That yeah. you know, people did you think he wanted you to be CEO? Them. That 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 you would you no, know, take I, it over someday? No, I, I don't no. think. I don't think that that. I don't think that thought was on my. Yeah. I, I've I've two brothers-in-law that, that I respect and they're older and I, so naturally I'd be like, Oh, hey. and they were involved in the business. They were, they were too yeah, got it, and, got and are, and you know, so yeah, a, yeah. they're his sons. I'm not, yeah, you know, right. be the older, you know, see, they know more about it than sure, I do. And then sure. you add D and say, is this actually my life plan? So, um, no, that, that wasn't, that wasn't a track, but eventually leaving also came a point where I realized if, if I stay there for more than three to five years, it yeah. started to get boxed in a lot. Right, right. I need to get out. And, and your mindset kind of becomes part of that whole thinking I, too. And you, I wasn't learning from best practice. Right, right. And, right. and that sounds a bit harsh, but I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I, right. I can I understand it enough that I can I can talk about it. But um, but when it comes to say analytics, marketing, financial planning, I I, I knew I'm not learning you know, best practice or sure. best tools. And, sure. and that's going to be a limiting factor, you know, in, in another three to five years. Like I haven't learned the basics right. called budgeting. Do we do budgeting or do we just sort of whip up ideas or right. what we spend right. on whatever? So was so New York Life next or where, where did you go after your I, time with Fona? I, 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 two, I two options that sort of crystallized at the time when I thought I need to find my way out. And key first step was, I, I knew if I leave, we're likely going to move. Right. And if right. we move, I'm going to take my wife and my two kids at the time. And my oldest was a boy. Right. It was my father-in-law's only grandson. grandson. Right. Oh so, you know, obviously, this Tough. is a very family-oriented yeah. family. Yeah. Really great. So I knew if we move, I'm going to take two grandkids and the daughter, the only right. daughter, away. Right. How do I do this right? And I, I had two two things that I pursued there. First was I want to make it a, a slow transition. Right. And, and that meant I'm going to do an MBA and I'm going to, and I'm going to pursue an MBA and I'm going to make the decision during that MBA, what to do next. And the second decision was we got to, if you ever watch everybody loves Raymond. This right. Time, yeah. Sure. This is radius. If you live within the yeah. radius, you're too yeah. close. If you live you know, outside the second radius, you're too far, but this right. in between where you're just in the right spot. I, I thought if we can be, an hour or two away, we're actually not totally gone, but we've sort yeah. of still get back for weekends for, or yeah, be around for vacations yeah. and such. And, yeah. and that was that. That's how it turned out in the end. I accepted a job in Norwalk, Connecticut, a company called, you know, formerly called US Surgical. Um, it's a billion dollar uh, surgical device company, right. and they were part of Tyco. And if you remember Tyco, oh yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. And Tyco split. You know, it was early. In mid two thousand, split to three companies: Tyco uh, Electronics, Tyco I think Security, yep. and yep. Tyco Healthcare. Yep. Um, 
Tyco Healthcare renamed when they split to a company called Covidian. Okay. It was a $10 billion medical business that eventually, now a few years ago, merged with, uh, I feel so old, you know, rallying through <laughs> years ago. They merged with Medtronic a few years ago. Um, right. right. So I was part of, it was part of the, you know, uh, U.S. business, billion dollars in surgical equipment, and I, I was brought in um, to to manage their bariatric surgery type to diabetes business. So it was a right. marketing role, um, and it, it was interesting because you had all these products that could use some different surgical procedures, you know, thoracic surgery or colorectal surgery or bariatric weight loss surgery. Um, but if you manage only towards the product, how do you talk to a surgeon who's focusing on a particular procedure? So right, right. They, they started to think a lot more about managing towards customers and they, they want to become customer centric. So they started to restructure how they thought about sales and marketing by saying, we're going to lead with, you know, thinking about a surgical area. Right. And you manage that with the products underneath towards, you know, success. Yeah. Main yeah. competitor was J&J. Was, you know, we, we were really good at what they did. They were maybe slightly better, you know. But that was a job that I had for two years. And I got sort of recruited out of that, not sort of, you know, um, by a friend from business school um, that I met. My first year in business school, I was still at Fonar. And then um, he was at the time, uh, I think, chief talent officer of New York Life Insurance. Mm-hmm. A fantastic guy. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike Barrier. And uh, he then moved on from there years later after he brought me in there you know, to be, I think he was number two in HR for Walmart. And then... Uh, with uh, Alcoa, I think, and now he's with McKinsey, you know, really, really good friend. Um, but he brought me in at a time when New York Life, you know, Fortune 100, uh, private Fortune 100 company, insurance and financial services, was thinking about building a corporate strategy group. And so mm, got it. His, his recommendation to the, 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 the man who managed it was um, uh, it, the former COO, and then he was on the executive committee, but was building up this, this team. Um, they were looking for an outside perspective. So right, I, I right. think I sort of fit the bill. I, I clicked well yeah. and got brought in to yeah. do that. So I want to fast forward now a little bit. Mm-hmm. You've been running Knocking six years, going on seven? Um, yeah, I, I founded I founded a company called Quingle. Quingle, 2014 yeah. 2014 well, that became so, so Knocking. Let's, let's yeah. go back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how you kind of went from these fairly large corporate operations, you know, New York Life Insurances, what? billions of dollars in yeah, sales yeah. and so forth. And you've worked with the companies. How did you kind of develop this entrepreneurial idea of yours? And, yeah. and we want to talk about knocking in a minute, but what was the thought process around it? Did you see an unmet need? Did you, <laughs> you know, kind of identify something or, or was it a, was it a personally motivated thing that you wanted it, to have more freedom? It, it, I, I realized two things uh, over the course of my career sort of leading to that point in, in 2014. And, and one, I, I realized early on said I'm, I'm a good, I'm a really good generalist. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good at a lot of things and good enough that I can have a conversation with someone who's great and they're not going to throw up you right, know, when right. I speak. Um, but I'm not great at anything. So if you give me eight skill sets, I'll be, I'll be 95, yeah. 90, 95 on, on, you know, five, six, seven of those. Right. But I won't be in 98, I won't be 100. Right. So now you think about a company that you have different departments or functional areas. You have you know, marketing and you have sales and you have finance and logistics and production and, and legal. And I will never be, I realized I will never be the, the guy who's going to rise to the top because I'm the best hmm. at finance or I'm the best at marketing. Right. Right. Um, I, I can be good at marketing. I could be okay at sales. I can be pretty good at legal. I can be good at finance. Um, but I realized that it, sort of, it has a strength and a weakness baked in. That if I had to sort of uh, use a comparison, if you think about the SAT, you know, students do, um, it has a math score and it has a language right, comparable, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're in the 90th percentile in math, it means you know you're beating nine out of ten people. Right. If you're in the 90th percentile on math and the 90th percentile in the language side, you actually end up being in the top one percent. Right. There's there's quite a few people at BGM math, but they're a lot worse on languages. And there's right. a, quite a few people, you know, nine out of a hundred that beat you in language, but they're a lot worse in math. So if you're solid in both, you have something special, just like everyone does, but you have to find a spot where this applies. And I realized if I work in a large company, the inclination for a large company is to look for the best person for a particular functional area. Right. Until right. they give you PL responsibility or until you're, you're high enough that you look over several things. 
So I knew my 20s and early 30s always had this undercurrent of thinking, I know I will look and seem and come across and actually be stronger the higher I get. Huh. And I, I struggled a bit more being in the slightly more junior position, you know, senior manager, director. Right, right. They had, they had confinement that I didn't have the strength to fill fully. Yeah. My strength is more taking three really good people yeah. and letting them excel because I can respect them for being better than me, but I can connect them in ways that they couldn't. So I realized that part and that, that was a significant one. That's just my, my skill set that I, I had to do this. The second one I, I, I realized over the years was I always end up getting assignments um, that required me to build up something new or build things from scratch, but hmm. always within companies, you know, do something with European sales. Well, you take it from half a million to 10 million. Now suddenly everyone pays attention and it was my father-in-law's company. Right Now right. everyone wants to have a say and, I, and I'm looking at this saying, I got it there and I have a better feeling for how to take it to, you know, 20, 25 million. But, you know, the U.S. culture comes in and wants to now go from 10 to 10 to 25 in a U.S. way. Right. That didn't work. Sure. I, I go to Covidian and I overhaul the way they do, you know, business management and, and product management and market management. I went to New York Life and I built up this department and I built up customer insights. I was asked to take a look at lead management. I, I built new things and, and I often bumped into this this point where I get my accolades because it did a really good job coming up with something new. Right. And then it, right. then it, that new thing gets taken and plugged into the existing as if it's just an add on that. I noticed that people often don't see the potential of the new, right. they see what you've already built. Interesting. And we build a lead management system that allowed us to see which of our, we had, I think 10, 12,000 sales agents and we handed out millions of leads to them. Right. We had no idea if these, guys or being gals, followed yeah call these people right so um i built a team that and we built a system actually built our own in-house telephony system that all calls routed through us and we could have analytics on who's calling whom when how quickly you send out a lead and you can you have a, a dashboard shows you how many seconds someone's waiting or hours a day wow. to call back and then you take that system and you can basically say here's a sales agent x we just gave him a lead, Grant Handley, who right. wants to be contacted. Sales agent X hasn't called in 48 hours. We're going to deactivate the phone number for Brand Handley, give it to another sales agent. And so ah. now so we, we, we generated. It's all about measurement. We generated tens metrics. of millions, tens yeah. of millions in, in doing that well. And, but the potential for it was a lot bigger and that, that yeah. got lost. And those that got lost. So, you know, back to your question, yeah. that made me go out. Is I saw this system that generated tens of millions for New York Life, you know, depending on account, I think it was like hundreds of millions in, in life insurance value and then annuities and other things. So uh, diff different ways of looking at impact. But I thought the impact of this outside of New York Life or in the broader industry would be tremendous. Be yeah. Wow. And so how do, you, how do you go about that? And I, right. that, that grew that thought of saying, what if I can build a system that allows anyone to have a unique phone number with the click of a button? You know, imagine you go to networking meeting you, no one wants to hand out the cell phone number we all hate phone calls right what if you build an app which we then did um what if you build an app that allows you to create a unique phone number with one click that you can activate deactivate and what if you add an ability within that app to make calls more intelligent so mm. when someone calls you they can send a subject line with the call right a lot more likely right. for someone to pick up if you say just this is know, what it's we'll about talk about dinner yeah yeah. And we added a feature that allowed you just to ask for a specific time. You, you know, in, in our app, you could call someone and you said you could, with the call, send a three-minute timer and say, I need to talk to you. Here's a subject. And then you click the number three. It's a three-minute call. Three minute and call. the app yeah. turned the, the call off after three minutes. It's wow. Snapchat meets Skype kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, um, cool. But underneath it was, was an analytics thought. Right. Like, what if we can enable better communication? and have great analytics so that that's what got me excited in 2014 when new york life started to restructure i, I realized if i stay put i'm gonna have to go back into a role that i'd already done yeah and probably do for a year or two right. while lots of change happened right and i i couldn't do that so yeah. I, I ended up i had good enough relationships with with the right people in senior management and you know up to the ceo that they were very friendly and they were understanding. And so right. I got to a point in 2014 where I indicated that um, I, I'm not sure what my role would be. 
you know, and so you let's, know let's talk about way. knocking. So, yeah. so, so you quiggle first, came into knocking. That's, yeah. That would the impetus was, hey, there's a quick, lot going on in the advertising world. Quick mingle. Quick, yeah. 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 And, and what, what led you to the, the knocking proposal? Um, started this, uh, started this app and, and the app had three different phases baked into it. Because when you build an app and you target something at consumers, you, you have to assume you're going to fail. You know, you, you're not going to have enough money to sway 300 million people to use your product. Mm. So you depend a bit on on it gaining traction and going viral a bit. And that's right. not a great marketing strategy. So you build something that's awesome and then you give it to people. And you, you hope that it, it resonates enough that it goes viral. A Snapchat didn't have to go viral. It just did. You know, TikTok didn't have to, but at the right time, with the right technology, done the right way it can. So we had a first app that we thought could go viral. If it doesn't, we have a different iteration that could by itself do something. And if that doesn't, we we had already at that point then built an entire telephony infrastructure allowed us to do analytics for businesses similar to what it did at New York Life, just in a different way, but better. You know, so right. plug and play, better reporting, and it, it works across devices. And I, um, a small team, I'd, um, I'd recruited someone, a friend from New York Life to um, to join and do all the backend development. Um, I'm not going to name names, but he, he'll, he'll know who he is. Great guy. And uh, I reconnected with an old friend from Berlin. That, yeah, from Germany. Right. Yeah, Stefan. You know, you know, yeah. yeah. And uh, one of my best friends, I, you know, like often happens, you don't know what your best friends are really good at in the work world. You just know that they're, you know, an attorney or that right. someone in development. But it turned out, um, I'm a business guy. I'm not a developer. But I had you know, one colleague, friend who I knew was really great, very creative. And I hear it, Stefan, who was in a very different part of technology, I thought likely very good. Well, I let the two of them work together. And I thought, I'm going to find out. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to find out who's good at what, right. you know, because I trust right. both of them, right? So yeah. I'm going to I'm going to find out what, what the strengths and weaknesses are. Um, so what we built this entire system, ended up using it sometime later um, at, at a company that uh, was called Simplistic. Uh, it was founded by my partner and COO uh, here at Knocking, Brian Ian. Um, and at the time, he was doing flash sale enablement, e-commerce development, working with ABC and GMA and The View, and just actually doing fantastic work. But he sort of had a backseat to a really cool industry. And uh, when we connected, he he got the idea of what Quingle was. Because years prior, he was, uh, he was part of a company that he led that build a um, an app called Knocking, hmm. Knocking Live. It was the right. first. It was the first live video app on uh, the iPhone. It got pop. It's so popular. They they got to a million users faster in Foursquare. Um, Steve Jobs actually personally allowed them to use custom code. It made the news everywhere. So that thing blew up. Right. They tripped over funding eventually because the, the, the two investors that called shots wouldn't accept a very, uh, I think, powerful funding offer. It's just disagreement on valuation. Um, you know, and then six, nine, 12 months later, the business ran out of funding. And yeah. It was, was a big loss. But yeah. Brian got what Quingle was and could be. So we, we started spending more time. And then we plugged the, the Quingle uh, analytics into his business for phone call and customer service. Um, and then we, we realized, you know, we should do something together. I looked at his business and said, if, if we take your business and instead of you just doing e-commerce, we actually own the whole thing. If, if we own curation, if we own content, if we own e-commerce, if we own the data, if we can be analytics-based, this can be a lot bigger than what we currently have. You know, a lot by, by multiples, you know, multiples of multiples. Um, and, and yet be analytics-focused. So we, we partnered up. And out of this, what really happened is we, we tried to be an analytics company and an e-commerce company. But the e-commerce moved faster. We right. have to make that choice. Do we do we push them both or do we push them the one that move faster? So as, as a founder, you pivot. You say, we're going to do the e-commerce, yeah. but we're going to be analytics-minded. Right. And if the time comes, we'll, well, we'll do the app and we'll do the analytics system. But the e-commerce accelerated and it gained a lot of traction. So what we have today is a, is a company that on the outset looks like a, a media and a production and commerce company. Um, but on the inside is actually very tech and very analytics centric right, by right. by the way we do it by the SaaS platform that we developed. So it's and, and kind of the unmet need is all this lost advertising revenue that many of the broadcasters had that have gone to the internet 
right? Now that you've kind of come in and replaced it with e-commerce. Yeah, revenue in, in a way, everything trickles down to revenue, right? right. Lost revenue or right. potential revenue. And what we had here was the, the overarching notion was similar in, in marketing in general. When you deal with a consumer, that consumer has a wallet. And if you can get a share of that consumer's wallet, yeah. you, you probably have done something productive. If you can do that for 300 million people, you're going to do something really great. And every business deals with that same question. Now, when you look at media, media, you know, the, most of media revenue comes from advertisement dollars that they earn. So think about a regular TV station. Every 60-minute period has about 16, 17-minute of advertisement time. Mm -hmm. Now, that's ad time. And the other 43, 44 minutes are called content time. And it, it's the content time that we all care about. It's interviews and news and shows and entertainment. But the media company has to care about good content to attract people. Right. But they make the money with the advertisement. So we looked at this and thought, what if you can make content that self-monetizes? What if you think about Shark Tank as a really great example? Millions of people watch Shark Tank. Shows get recorded and rewatched year after year. But they don't have a call to action that says, if you want to buy this thing right now, you can buy it. Go to sharktankdeals.com. Um, and there's reasons why they haven't. Uh, uh, and this, but the reasons are not good ones. It's more like <laughs> different large companies not able to figure out how, how to work together on something. But when you go on Shark Tank, you may you may sell a million dollars worth of product the first night that you get air just because people check you out. Right. The same is true anywhere in media. If you reach a hundred thousand people and you tell them about something that's life changing and good for them, well, people will check it out and a subset will buy it. Right. So if you're a media company, why aren't you intentionally monetizing it? Why are you not getting a share of that revenue? And that's, that's the problem that knocking is, is solving for media companies. Right. Say, how do you become part of your consumer wallet on spending versus having all your revenue come from advertisement? And you've grown about five times in the last four or five years. I, yeah, we, well, I just uh, did the math. I think with the last three years, we had a 109% CAGR, like wow. a three-year CAGR. So wow. we, we grew well. You know, CAGR, so you, you choose a very low base, right? And then suddenly <laughs> it's awesome. But you no, know, we, we got, you know, uh, we're not choosing a zero base. We had a few million in 2018, and we we grew very well from there. And how many employees today? Um, I guess it, it fluctuates in part. I, I would say we're now, I'd say we're now around 60. Around 60. And I'm wow. saying it, I'm saying it with with some hesitation only because we we did some restructuring and looking at uh, how we do production and how we think about market expansion. Right. And you come to a point where sometimes you have to trade. Sometimes you have to trade quality for quantity. Sometimes right. you have to trade quality quantity for quality. Right. And and both can be good trades, right? You can be in certain areas and functions, you know, sitting on way too much quality that's uh, that is needed. But at other times, like we just had on the production side, we realized we have to, as a company, be excellent at producing content for right. media partners. And, yeah. Um, and so there's two things at play here. You have to touch people's hearts. You have to tell a story that's unique. Um, you have to be sensitive to the needs of different audiences. And then once you try to do all this, you have to put it on film, someone right. video, in, right. in a good way. You have to think about lighting and you know clothing and scripts and all this. So we, we just um, hired a, a really, really great addition to our team. And, and Candy Carter who joined us in, in February. She was um, the executive producer for Oprah for many years Um and then um, turn around the view. I think she was with the view for five years. You know, phenomenal person. You know, if you watch the Oprah, the you know, you get a car, and you get a car, you get a car. Well, that kind of stuff doesn't happen unless you have an executive producer like Candy who who knows what resonates, right. but also right. thinks of it as a business. So, Candy joined us. Really uh, great for knocking. Uh, we just had Damon John uh, from Shark Tank. Join yeah, us as just a just announced this week. But yeah, fantastic. fantastic. Really, really excited because it, you know, you. you you don't always know people that you think you know until you sort of have the opportunity to dive deeper. And I, I know Shark Tank guys, right? You know right. Mark Cuban, you know David right. Jones. Um, but but when you get to know them more and you see how they think, you sometimes you know. In, in his case, you just gain a lot more respect for what they've accomplished and and what they're able to do. Um, and when you get, have the chance to partner with someone like Damon, what it does for us is it opens doors for conversations. And I right. think in, in turn, I, I'm expecting we'll do the same for Damon because Damon invests in lots of businesses. So if you're an investor in 20 companies, 
often you don't know which ones really will do well. Sure. Well, at Knocking, you can plug your 20 companies into our business. We put you on 200 TV stations. We'll know within a week which products really sell and which don't. So there's tremendous opportunity to improve each other. But uh, having Dave and John join us, it was a really, really cool thing for us. We're just about out of time. So I've got a couple of questions that I want to catch that we ask all our guests. And, you know, building a company culture is important. You've had some terrific hires and obviously folks that are going to really open doors for you for the future. And we expect another 5x growth over the next period. But what do you look for personally in the people that you invest in and hire that you bring in? That's That's a great question. I the, the first, the first thought is, and it's not the best one, but the first thought is, what needs have we identified? You know that we want to fill right. with, with talent and sure. capability, and that, that's not the best answer because your perception of needs is a snapshot in time, and it changes six months later. But if, if you if you get good at thinking strategically, you'll realize some needs are here to stay. You got right. to fill them for right. people. But um, I'd say um, we, we've done really well in bringing in people that know someone in the company. We've done well in having friends or family members or you know, siblings or former you know, students you know, or student friends join because there's accountability in working with people that you respect and you know. Right. And it's, it's hard. I've seen this in larger companies. It's hard to drive actual earnest effort into a company. It's, that is that is hard to put in if it's not in you already, but it comes out of relationships. So the, the better you are at being relationship driven or relationship enabling. Mm. Now, I'm an introvert. I'm not the biggest relationship driver. I, I can talk in front of a thousand people or I'll talk in front of two. I right. prefer those two. Right. I don't want to be in a room with 30 people and sort of have to slowly get to know everyone. It, 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 it drains me, right. but uh, you know, it's, um, that, that's my set. But I, I look at a, a company and, and individuals at our side size. Um, if I can create an environment where people can have a relationship, if they can partner or work in a department with people that they know and trust, mm. it's a big win. If you can bring in people that um, are respectable for what they do, that's great. But even better is people have an appetite to learn. Right. Because right. appetite to learn typically implies coachability. Yeah. And coachability yeah. is, is so key. And I, I have this conversation with, you know, um, my, my two co-founders, Brian or Stefan, you know, occasionally I say, hey, guys, you know, we're going to be a $100 million company and $200 million company. And at that point, you know, Brian, I'm not sure you'll be the best CEO. Yeah, and Stefan, right. I'm not sure you're the best CTO. And I really yeah. know if I'll be the right CEO. <laughs> and I truly don't. But I, I'm hoping that as long as we, we have this, this sense that there's stuff to learn and there's stuff to be nimble about that, we'll be better, I guess, um, better prepared to, yeah. to grow with it. So what I'm looking for, I'm looking for people who are curious. I'm looking for people mm. who are relational. I'm looking for people who are coachable and want to learn. I'm looking for people who, who drive execution. I, I'd rather have you do three things and get one wrong than right. have you spend three days on one thing and maybe it's not even fully done. Do you have a do you have a favorite interview question that you use with new hires? I was worried because do you have a favorite employee? <laughs> <laughs> well, we know who that is. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a question a question I, I like to ask is, and it, it, it comes typically typically would come early in interviews. I want to break the ice and go from the the technical job right. back and forth to getting to know the person. And, and one question I found is very helpful is uh, when you ask someone to say. You know, Brand, if you think about the person that, that has impacted you so much, mm. that you want to look back at your life when you're 50, 60 and say, I wish I was, or I'm so glad I was at least half that yeah, person. Yeah. You know? um, who do you look up so much that, that you'd be happy just getting to half of their level and whatever it is that, that Roxy Bowen is important to you? And um, I ask that question because if you remove the focus and the, and the question from the person, right. you still learn a lot about the person. Sure. And, yeah. and you know, you it's get great question. really Love great it. answers. People go to the parents, people yeah. go to yeah. another Teresa. Former boss. But it's why they go there that, right. that really is yeah. interesting and instructive. What, what do you great. admire? The thing you admire, you're going to try to emulate. You're going to yeah. try to be yeah. coachable around. So yeah. it's a question I, I like it. to ask. It tells me a lot. Last question. We asked this of all our guests, and that's what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that, has their sites in own con, you know corner office, or or maybe yeah. wants to be an entrepreneur like yourself. Yeah, <laughs> um, I I was always you know somewhat uh, framework minded. You know when I when I view an area that's worth thinking about, I want to create a framework for how to think about it so I can 
cut through clutter right. faster. And one one piece of career advice is that as as you say you're 20 and you think about the next 10 years, I'd say there's four ways that you can develop in your career, regardless of where you go, that that just open doors and take you to another level. And those four things are you can get a better title, you can get mm-hmm. higher pay, you can get more personnel responsibility, yep. or you can get more financial slash operational responsibility. Yep. Those are the four key markers of your job. And it, you can be a doctor and make a lot of money, have a great title, and, you know, maybe very few people working for you, but it works everywhere. And the reality is that you want to make, you want to take steps up, um, you know, call it every two to three years. But when you take a step up, typically you'll take a step up in one or two of those four. Right. Right. It's very rare that someone, you know, company will give you a higher title, higher pay and more people. That's uh, right. Or, you know, a higher budget responsibility or PL responsibility. And it, it's rare to get more than two. Um, and so the important thing is to start thinking which of these four matter. Right. And the, the two that matter are if you have it in you, aim to have people work for you because you want to learn how to motivate and lead people. Yeah. And if it's hard for you, all the more <laughs> learn right. it. Right. And you want to have responsibility, whether it's financial, budget, PL. Because that's the real stuff. That's where the rubber hits the road. Your title and your pay will follow these other two. Correct. Now, there's times where, you know, you stalled somewhere and you, you can't find your way out of a job or a company or it's, you know, good in some ways, bad in others. Well, sometimes give up some, you know, you have a team of 10 people, you go down to two, but you get a better title, better pay, do it. But you're doing it only as a stepping stone. Right. Right. You want to take that pay and that title. As soon as possible, find a job where you have more people or more operational financial responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it helps. So you can also be content along the way that if you take a step up one or two, you've done something well. Yeah. Don't chase don't chase the money and the yeah, title. Absolutely. But they are meaningful too. It, they're just a tool to a much better end. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, Marcus Ryman, CEO and founder yeah. of Knocking, co-founder of Knocking. Thank you so much for yeah. sharing your journey into the corner office. Yeah, very well. Good talk to you, Brad. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.